all right, that's it. You can all go home now. Uh, happy birthday, Amazing Grace. Who knew, right? My uh, twin brother and I, when we were growing up, we changed the words a little bit. And every time we sang it in church, we would always sing an Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. And so if, if Steve, if you're watching, you're still a wretch. Uh, my wife and I live about a mile that way from Johnson Ferry down Woodlawn. And last night, of course, there were two big events. There was New Year's Eve and then there was a, a game, some. There was a football game that did not involve Auburn. Um, and so it's a, it's a bad combination of events for somebody who is preaching the next day and wants to go to sleep. I think I got to sleep about 1 a.m. And, uh, you know, we don't do naming rights for the sermons. There's no Chick-fil-A sermon hour. But I, but I will tell you that this sermon is brought to you by a very good friend of mine by the name of Caffeine. Because um, otherwise it might, not, it might not make much sense. Um, I'm going to do something that I think is risky this early in the year. What are we, 10 hours and 24 minutes into the year? And that's make you think. And I apologize for that in advance. But I'm going to ask you a question. Who do you think is the most underrated person in the entirety of Scripture. We've got a lot of great figures, you know, Moses in the Old Testament, obviously Jesus, Paul, all these great people in the New Testament. But who's that really one underestimated person? Well, for me, that's Luke. And, and think about it. So uh, we just got done with Christmas. Everything we know about Christmas, with the exception of the, the story about the wise men, really comes from Luke. Otherwise, we wouldn't know uh, anything about it. Luke was born probably five or six years after Jesus. We don't know for sure. He was born in Antioch, which is a city that no longer exists in modern-day Turkey. Uh, but interesting guys. So um, early Christians, uh, one early Christian wrote that Luke was among the 72 people who were sent out by Jesus in Luke 10. And so that would make Luke not only one of the earliest disciples of Jesus, but also one of the first non-Jews to, to follow Jesus. As a non-Jew, he knew the Jewish scriptures. Uh, he, he went on at least two of Paul's missionary journeys, maybe more. We don't know for sure, um, but he was also there according to 2 Timothy. Paul writes that, that um, Luke was there right before Paul died. Now, Paul obviously didn't know he was going to die. He was going to be executed, but he was. And, and Luke was there at the end. So Luke's a really important person. And to me, he's that really underestimated person. Uh, one of the things he did, and the, the thing that we know him most for, when he was just slightly younger than, than me, and Luke lived to be an old man, we think into his 80s. Uh, but when he was slightly younger than me, so in his, you know, 20s or whatever, uh, Luke began to write a history. Uh, and his history, he determined, was going to be the life of Jesus and was going to in also involve the early church. And, and he said in, in Luke 1, he tells us two things about what he's going to write. Number one is it's going to be based on fact. So a lot of, uh, if, if you read history in antiquity, a lot of it is just public relations campaigns for, for battles. Usually the, the, the 
I was going to say team, but the country that won or the group of people that won a battle would write up some type of poem about it. And that was history. Well, Luke was going to write fact, and to make sure that he got the facts right, he was going to do a bunch of interviews to get to the eyewitnesses and understand what happened in the life of Jesus and what happened in the, in the life of the early church. And he had Paul for that. But he certainly interviewed, we, we, we think, and we, we did, nobody has told us this, but it's almost certain he interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, which we get the, the, all the stories in Luke 1 and 2 about the visits of the angels to the two moms, the miraculous births, her visit to Elizabeth, uh, the, the trip to Bethlehem, the no room in the inn. All of these things that we get are, are, are from Luke, even the, the angels visiting the shepherds and the shepherds in turn coming to visit Mary and Joseph. Well, we also get uh, today's story uh, that we're going to look at. It's a, uh, uh, Ellie Stevens is going to come in a second and read for us, but I want to set the scene a little bit. We're going to look at what's called a paracopy. I'm going to give you... your. I'm, again, you're going to have to learn something today, and I'm sorry about that in advance, but a paracopy is any standalone story in Scripture. So we're going to look at a story that if we took it out of Scripture, it would stand alone. Uh, and our paracopy today has to do with Mary and Joseph. So it's now a week after Christmas, not only for us, but in the story for them. So it's seven days later, and they have to make the trip from Bethlehem, which is about five and a half miles south of Jerusalem. They have to make the trip from Bethlehem all the way to Jerusalem. Again, it's, it's five and a half miles. I, I like to think that Mary, uh, Mary and Jesus entered the city on a donkey because that would be the way the Holy Spirit works, right? They, the last week of, the first week of Jesus's life, he enters the city on a donkey and the last week, uh, he starts the, the week entering on a donkey. But they came to do, they came to do a couple of things. The, the trip takes about 45 minutes today because you have to, uh, Bethlehem is in Palestinian territory, Jerusalem's in Israel. So you go uphill, uh, kind of like we, you know, we did when we walked to school, if you're my age. It was uphill both ways. Now it snowed a lot more back then. Um, but you'd go uphill and, uh, you have to go through customs now. So it takes a, a, almost an hour. Back then, it probably would have taken close to a, a day. And they came to do four things, three of which were commanded uh, in the Old Testament by the Jewish law, one of which they did, which had become custom to the Jews. And I'm going to go through these real quick. And then, Ellie, I want you to read us our passage. I'm not going to make you sit there for much longer. Um, but the first thing they did is they came to pay a tax. So it was called the Pigeon Habin tax. I looked up a, a, on how to pronounce that. And it was a tax on the firstborn son. So a, a good Jewish family would pay a tax of five shekels on that son to redeem him symbolically from, from life as a priest. As we know from the Old Testament, the Levites uh, became the priestly class, but to symbolically redeem your child from life as a priest, they would pay five shekels. They would pay this tax. And, and some Orthodox Jews seek to do this even, even today. The, the second two things they did to follow the law were both ceremonies. So they, they uh, brought Jesus to be circumcised. Uh, I've been talking with Clay about five weeks ago about what he wanted me to talk about from this passage. He said, well, why don't you just 
spend the whole time talking about circumcision. And I decided, you know, I'm probably not going to do that. Um, so you're welcome. But they would bring Jesus to be circumcised. And that, of course, was commanded by uh, uh, God to Abraham. In Genesis 17, it tells us this. It says, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. So that's, again, they're, they're keeping the law by doing this. The second ceremony was the one which is, is more detailed here, and that's a purification ceremony that's to be purified from birth. And there's two parts. There would be a ritual washing, but you also paid an, another tax. And in the case of Mary and Joseph, they, they uh, paid that tax with a, with a dove. Uh, we, read in the, uh, we read in the passage today. Now, this, um, this particular uh, ceremony, uh, it sounds sexist that the mother has to do this. If Joseph had taken any part in the birth of Jesus, which he, he, he did, he just had to have because they didn't have the money to afford a midwife or whatever, uh, then he would also have to go through the same process. So probably Joseph and Mary uh, went through the, the cleansing process here. Uh, the last thing that they did, and this is not required by the law, but it, by the first century it had become Jewish tradition. Jews believed that a baby had no identity, and this partly was probably due to infant mortality. They believed that a, a baby had no identity outside of the, the mother. And so they wouldn't name a child until it was eight days old. And so Jesus got the name Jesus on the eighth day. Uh, before that, he was just a boy or son. Uh, and that was commanded by, commanded by the Lord that they name him that. It's a transliteration of the Greek. But imagine the scene because uh, it's Joshua in English and it means the Lord is salvation. And here the priest says, well, what are you going to name your child? And he says, we're going to name him the Lord is salvation. Get, get it? The, the Lord is salvation, right? And the priest is going, oh, you know, whatever, because um, he doesn't get it. So anyway, Ellie, if you'll come up, we're going to look at Luke 2, 21 to 24. And, and what we're trying to get at here, so the first family has gone from Christmas now it's the, the what next. So, you know, you've got diapers to change, sleep to be deprived of, a baby to feed. And think about it writ large with us. We come to belief in Jesus. We're saved. We're born again. So how do we live our lives? Well, let's see what we can learn from Mary and Joseph. Ellie. Days were completed so that it was time for his circumcision. He was also named Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what has been stated in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young doves. Luke 2, 21 through 24. Has, has circumcision ever been so cute? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, open our eyes, open our ears to hear what you have to tell us today, what we can learn 
about how to live as believers in Jesus Christ. In your son's name we pray, amen. Um, so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at the, a little bit at this, the, the story about what's going on here. Um, and, then, uh, and then I'm gonna make three points. So uh, the, the uh, I, you, know, you guys may not know this, the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century actually declared that each sermon preached from thence on had to have three points. So that's why we're gonna have three points. But I wanna introduce the story. I wanna talk about the story a little bit. So Mary and Joseph make the, the trip to the, uh, the, the temple. They're there to fulfill these three aspects of the, uh, of the Jewish law. They name Jesus, uh, they go through all that. They travel the 5.5 miles. And they do this, uh, I, I, think it, I, I think the thing that God wants to get out of this again is, it, you know, for them, it's a week later, they've got to start to live their lives. So what does their, what do their lives look like? What can we learn from what they do here? Again, for us, it's, we, you know, we live our lives as believers. We come to know the Lord. Some of you, it might've been five decades ago. Some of you, it may have been five days ago that you came to know the Lord, but you've got a life to do. You've got jobs. We've got, some of us have schools. Some of us have other things to do. So how, how, what can we learn from Mary and Joseph about how to live our lives? Well, three things, I think. And the first one that we're gonna talk about is that uh, we become, one of the things when you become a believer, you become identified as a Christian. Uh, so uh, John Bunyan in his book, A Pilgrim's Progress, names his main character Christian. Some of you actually may carry the name either Christian or Christiana as a girl, but most of us are named something else. But isn't it interesting in the, in the English language, Christian language, in the English language, you know, we have a surname, which is our last name, but our first name is called our Christian name. You know the reason we do that? It's because Christian comes from the Latin Christianus, which means a follower of Jesus. It's intended that whatever name we have, it's to be superseded by an identity as a follower of Jesus. As believers, people should be able to look at you and look at me and say, that's a follower of Jesus. That's the first thing that we learned from Mary and Joseph. Well, where, John? Well, this is a very, very Jewish story. All of these are Jewish laws that they fulfill. If we were to read on in the gospels, we'd see Mary keeping the law. Joseph has probably passed away, but Mary keeps the law. She attends the Jewish festivals. And, and we see that the uh, picture of a really righteous Jewish couple. In fact, in Matthew one, we're told uh, that Joseph is a righteous man. Righteous means right with God. It was very hard to be right with God in the first century. It's very hard to be a righteous Christian in the 21st century. But you and I, like Mary and Joseph, one of the things we learn from them is that we're to have an identity as a follower of Christ. That's the first thing. And I'm gonna go through the first two quick because the third one's where I wanna kind of focus today. I think there's some uh, really practical stuff. The second thing uh, is that we're blessed beyond any ability to understand how blessed we are. In our case, the second you become a believer, you start to live eternal life, which is a great way to think about it, isn't it? You, you start to live eternal life. You are no longer, uh, th th there is no longer your, the, the chance that you could wind up in hell. 
you're going to spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. And that process has already started. Well, where do we see the blessing for Mary and Joseph? Because they don't have any, they don't have a car. They don't have a home. They, they don't have any discernible income. We don't hear anything about Joseph working until there's, there's some thought that, uh, you know, he you know, has this carpenter shop ultimately in Nazareth, but we don't know for sure. Their baby is born in a stable for Pete's sake. So these are not people with any means at all. So where does the blessing come? In fact, Mary tells us in chapter one of Luke, people will talk about for eternity, will talk about how blessed I am. It's an extraordinary thing to claim. Well, where's the blessing come from? Well, think about it this way. So um, Mary, Mary and Joseph know Jesus better than anybody, don't they? Because they're his mother and dad. Now think about what that means. That means they know Israel's Messiah. They know the Redeemer. They know God himself, the God-man. They know him better than anybody else. Think about all the people that have lived since them. Jesus will gather 12 disciples around him. We have these brilliant people like Paul, Augustine, people that changed the world like Martin Luther. And none of them, not a single one of them will know God as well as his parents. He, they know the God-man. They know Jesus better than anybody else. That's an amazing thing. And think what they know. It's, it's something only a handful of people know. So you've got some shepherds in Bethlehem. You got Mary and Joseph. You got Elizabeth back in, in the northern part of Israel. And you've got, uh, if we read on in chapter two, we'd see that Anna and Simeon, two really interesting characters also know. But it's a really limited knowledge of the people that know that the Messiah has come. John the Baptist would know, but it's a really limited number. I, I told my wife, it's sort of like the Academy Awards. So in the Academy Awards, some actor or actress comes out and they've got an envelope and it's there to, to announce the best picture. But until they tear open the envelope and say the best picture is some movie that John hasn't seen over the course of the last year. Before they announce that, the only people that know are like two or three accountants from Price Waterhouse, right? They know who the winner is. Well, that's sort of like Mary and Joseph. And this is going to be the only time in your life you hear Mary and Joseph compared to CPAs. But they are the only people that know the identity of Jesus. How blessed is that? And think about this. Think about this. So we've got some kids in the audience. Um, and we've got, the, you know, some of you probably were kids at one time. Um, Somebody could grow up and be the fourth greatest American that we've ever had. So it's, it's, by the way, it's Washington, Franklin, and Lincoln. Don't argue with me on that, because um, that's just, that's fact. But your child could grow up to be the fourth greatest American who ever lived. And, and yet, how many people would that person have saved? Think about Mary and Joseph. They can go around heaven, and every single person they see was saved by their son. Now, how blessed is that? Oh my gosh. So number one, we've got a new identity. Number two, we're blessed beyond any ability to understand how blessed we are. But number three, and, and this is the practical part of it. I want to think about the two birth narratives because this, this is basically what the two birth narratives are about. In Matthew, so we have uh, Joseph and Mary, the wise men come, they're commanded to go to Egypt, and what do they do? 
They obey, right? They're commanded to come back to Israel, but, but not to the south. They're commanded to go to north, the far north in Nazareth, and they obey. Think about Luke's gospel. Okay, we see all sorts of ways that Mary and Joseph obey. The, the chief one, when Mary gets this thing from this angel, from Gabriel, and he says, you're going to give birth to a child, and oh, by the way, you'll still be a virgin when you give birth. Look at what she says. This is in, um, in Luke 1, 38. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You can't find any higher level of obedience. And I think the third thing we learn from, in fact, I don't think, I know the third thing that God wants us to see in this uh, pericope that we're looking at is obedience. So Mary and Joseph were obedient. They were obedient to the law. Again, they weren't being legalists. The Pharisees were legalists, but since they were righteous, they were doing it out of righteousness, not out of legalism. So what I want to do is park on the subject of, uh, of obedience for a second. My, uh, the twin brother that's a wretch um, was also, also went to seminary in uh, Lake Forest in Illinois. And he told me once that he had a professor of preaching who said, Steve, I want you to think that every time you give a sermon, I'm in the back of the sanctuary with my arms crossed going, so what? So here's the so what part. This is the, the very practical part of what we're going to talk about because I want to talk about two questions. One, why do we as believers obey beyond the fact that God commands it? Because that should be enough, but we're people, right? So it's never enough. And then number two, can you get better at obedience? I'll give you the answer now. It's yes, but I've got some ideas and maybe even a New Year's resolution for you around that. So um, reasons that we obey. So the first question was reasons that we obey. Um, I think there's a bunch of them, but just four of them to think about. The first one that immediately comes to mind, probably for most of us, is gratitude, right? John 3.16 tells us that, that uh, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now that's extraordinary promise from God, but two words stick out to me in that. The first is begotten uh, because Jesus, when he said that, does not use born, he uses begotten because it's a very important, it's a very important word. A giraffe can only begat a giraffe. An elephant can only begat an elephant. A person can only begat a person. God can only begat God. And so Jesus is claiming Godhood when he tells this, when he gives this particular statement. But the word that really knocks me out, this is a good 60s phrase, right? Um, the word that really gets me is the word world, for God so loved the world. Because it's a loaded word. The Greek is cosmos. The Latin is mundum. Uh, it's a loaded word and it because it means so much more than just a planet. Okay? It's, it's a world that's in active rebellion to God. Before we become believers, we, we hate God. We, we hate the idea of God. We see him as some type of cosmic party pooper full of thou shalt nots. And we can't have any fun without him. So we want to go shove him off his cosmic throne and take his place and rule our own lives. But we become believers and Romans 5.1 tells us we're finally at peace with God because we were at war with him before, okay? So what we see is we should have gratitude because God takes that kind of person, 
who's in active rebellion to him and saves that person. So one of the reasons we're obedient to God is just out of, out of sheer gratitude. Um, another reason that we're obedient to God is because of some of his promises. In Romans 8, 28, uh, Paul tells us, and, and, we, and this is another familiar passage, but, and we know for those who love the Lord, love God, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, one of the things that we know about God is that God is omniscient. That means that God has perfect knowledge of the past, the present, and the future. As you sit here, you have zero knowledge about the future. You may think you do. You may think that Georgia is going to win next week. Truth is, we don't know. And they will. Um, <laughs> but we don't know for sure. Something, you know, 22 people could get hurt or something in practice this week. Um, we, don't, we, we really don't know much about the present. I mean, beyond this room, what do you know about what's going on in the world? And, and, and most of us don't know much about the past. So, you know, we're, we're, we don't have any of the knowledge that God does, but we know that God has perfect and infinite knowledge about the past, present, and the future. That means we can put perfect trust in him. And when he tells us to do something, that means that we obey because we know it's the best thing for us. We're gonna come back to that one in a second. The third one uh, is from Matthew 6. When we obey, we lay up for ourselves treasures in heavens. There's one, if you want to be selfish, that's a good one. And that's probably along with circumcision, a sermon for another day, but uh, we're going to quickly go through that one. Uh, and then finally, we obey as a witness to others about our faith. There's a, a quote that's attributed to St. Francis, which he didn't say, uh, but it goes like this, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. A lot of you have heard this one before. And it's bad theology because Paul tells us we're to speak the gospel, but you kind of get the point. The point is there's people watch. It, 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 you have an identity as a Christian. That was point number one, remember? Uh, you have an identity as a Christian. People are watching you all the time. And so your actions actually matter. Your obedient actually matters. Obedience actually matters to your witness. Let me, I'll give you an example. For 35 years, I worked uh, with two different uh, global consulting firms. I've retired about three years ago. And I was on a project about 15 years ago with the second firm, which was a, a much bigger firm. We had offices in, I think, 30 countries around the world. And I was in Stockholm on a project with the firm. And one of the partners said, hey, let me why don't you come out to my house? I'd love to get to know you better. Why don't you come out to my house and, and we'll have dinner? And I said, that's fine. I didn't have anything else to do. So I came out to his house and um, he cooked out. Who knew sweets did that, right? I didn't even know they had grills. Um, but he cooked out and we ate on a picnic. He introduced me to his wife and kids and he told them to go away. And we sat out on the picnic table in the backyard and, and we had dinner. And he said, well, let me, uh, I'd love to get to know you better. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And I said, well, I'm married. I've got three kids, all girls. And I told him about my daughters and my wife. And he said, well, what do you guys do for fun? And I said, well, we're really active in our church. We love our church and we're really active there. And he said, you're kidding. And I said, no. He said, do you know you're the only person I have ever met in my life who went to church? Now, that was, a, that was a real moment for me because I had no idea to him 
the, the, so not the burden, but well, yeah, the burden of the witness that I was carrying. And if I was disobedient to God, what would he connect with Christianity? Hypocrisy, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I met a Christian once and he was a hypocrite. Why should I be interested in those guys? So we never know what our witness, uh, what our witness is showing other people. So th those are some reasons that we're motivated. Uh, what I wanna do is spend the most time uh, and we'll finish with this, with my second question, and this is the very practical part, how do I foster a lot life of obedience? Well, I'm gonna very humbly offer six tips and you're, you're free to adopt one of these or frankly, some of you could use all of them <laughs> for your New Year's resolution. Uh, the first one is this, and this is the most obvious one. If we're gonna be obedient, we've gotta know what it is that God, how God wants us to obey. And how do we know what God wants us to do in being obedient to him? We know it through scripture, right? And so we've gotta read our Bible. Bible is absolute truth. I often own, I've been an elder here at Johnson Ferry for a little over two decades. And over the years, we've had a lot of church discipline cases, uh, a number of which have included infidelity and I can't tell you how many times we have had the offending party come back to us and say you know Mr. Elder or Mr. Group of Elders um, I really think that God has me in this new relationship and he's blessing this new relationship well there is a 100% chance that that's wrong why because God never abrogates his own law God says he hates divorce and God always hates divorce. He doesn't hate it sometimes. He doesn't hate it once or twice. He hates it all the time. And so we see people try to make up their, their own law. Let me, uh, I'm gonna come back to this guy in a second, but there's a man by the name of John Owen who wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. Uh, and he wrote, he wrote this about exactly that phenomenon. He said, this is very important. It's dangerous and wrong when a person deceives his own soul. All the warnings God gives us to examine ourselves will help to prevent this great evil of speaking peace to ourselves without solid reason, which is what these people are doing. We don't want to end up blessing ourselves in opposition to God. And you can't do that if you don't know what God wants from you in the first place. So you've got to know obedience. You've got to know your scripture. Number two. Tip number two, pray that you will be more obedient. Now that sounds really obvious. It's always one of the answers for Christians, but I am talking about more than bolting on to the end of your prayer, a line that says, oh, and God help me be more obedient, amen. Okay, what I am talking about, and right now I am going to cash in my man card because I love musical theater. And I know that's not a terribly manly thing to do, but one of my favorite Musicals is Fiddler on the Roof. And the reason it is, is I love the character Tevya. Te the story, if you haven't seen it, the story takes place in 19th century Russia. It's in a small village and it takes place in the Jewish ghetto within that small village. Tevya is a milkman and during the course of his milk route to all the various Jewish houses, because he can't supply the non-Jewish houses, uh, he has this ongoing conversation with God. And it's really remarkable. And that's, I think that's what we're talking about here. It's more than just tacking on something to the end of your prayer. It's, it's having this ongoing conversation with God 
throughout your day. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians. He says, pray without ceasing. I think if we actually do that in our lives, if we approach life as just this ongoing conversation with God, we, we drive obedience in our lives. Uh, tip number three, seek to love the Lord supremely. Now, where does this come from? Well, Jesus in his ministry was asked, what's the most important of the laws, Jesus? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's from Deuteronomy 6. It's the, the Shema or Shema, because uh, uh, Hebrew is a vowelless language. So we add what we think are the vowels to make it pronounceable. Uh, but it's the Shema, and a good Jew would say this, the very first thing when he woke up, he would say the, the Shema. And then the last thing before he went to sleep, he would say the same thing. And so Jesus is telling us that's the most important thing. A lot of this obedience stuff, followers of me, can be taken care of by just loving the Lord supremely. You can imagine, if you, if you really did love the Lord supremely, obedience would be a, a nothing burger for you. Um, second, or, or the second half of that, but tip number four, uh, is that we're to seek to love others. Because Jesus in his answer said, and, and you're to love others as you love yourself. Now, the first response we always have is, well, there's so many unlovable people, Jesus. Uh, there's people in this room that are unlovable. There's a guy at work that's unlovable. My boss is unlovable. There's a teacher at school that's unlovable. Well, what is Jesus' response? His response is, that person is your bruised, bloodied, dying person by the side of the Jericho Road, and you are that person's good Samaritan. That's a hard teaching, but if we can actually live our lives like that, then we're going to be more obedient to the Lord. Uh, Number five, tip number five. Then I'm going to slow down now because the last two are the longer two points. Actively seek to kill sin in our lives. We, even the great saints, so it's the 250th anniversary of John Newton's, uh, uh, the performance of Amazing Grace. John Newton, after he became a believer, remained a slave trader for a while. Um, he ended up being an abolitionist to his credit, but that's, the, uh, you know, it, Martin Luther was anti-Semitic and, and was frankly not a very pleasant person to be around. So people struggle. We, we have sins in our lives. Some of, them, some of them you may have worked at for decades even to try to get out of your life. I, I call them the intractable sins in our lives. So in the next few minutes, I'm going to make two book recommendations. The first one I've alluded to. It's called The Mortification of Sin. Uh, the bookstore actually was able to order some copies of this. You don't have to read it now, but at some point in your life, please read this. I, I've read it, reread it last year, and, and this book has changed my life because it's, it really helps with dealing with those really hard sins in our lives, the ones that we just seem like we can't get rid of. I mean, I, I, you know, whatever it is uh, for you. And... Uh, Here's, what, um, here's some of the chapters, dozens of ways, really tips that Owen's, Owen gives. But here's some that come from, the, this is from the table of contents. Uh, he says this, be constantly and desperately longing for deliverance from the sin. Well, that's a, that's a good one. Ask whether you are by nature vulnerable to the sin. Now that's interesting because genetics, he wrote in the 1600s, there's no genetics for 300 years. Uh, but he sensed that people had a proclivity in their lives to certain sins. Recognize that if that's the case. 
ask when and how the sin usually attacks and overcomes you. Uh, I, I traveled for 35 years every week. Uh, when I was in a, a hotel, I always ate dinner in my room. I wasn't gonna have an affair or, or anything like that, but you know, why take the, the risk, right? Don't put yourselves in, in places where you might be um, tempted to sin. Uh, another one, think about how insignificant you are compared to God and how little you know him. This is a really great book in trying to kill those sins that it seems like we just really can't get rid of in our lives. Uh, tip number six uh, is, a, is a really good one. And this is the second book recommendation. It's a book by the, uh, a guy by the name of Stephen Charnock, who's also a Puritan uh, was also a Puritan minister. Both of these are actually kind of hard to read, not because of the content, but they're written in Elizabethan English, so the same language as Shakespeare. Um, I have trouble with Shakespeare. I actually didn't have as much trouble with these two books. Shakespeare's really hard for me, so I just don't read him. But Charnock wrote a book called The Existence and Attributes of God. So I wanna take you through a little exercise. We're gonna look at three attributes of God and I want us to, to reflect, meditate on those, because I think if we do this during the course of the next year, it can help us better with obedience. And I told you we'd come back to the first one. It's omniscience. Uh, and I, uh, Charnock's book, it's 80, an 80-page 80 section on omniscience. And he talks all these things about it. It's just astounding the way that he breaks down these attributes of God. And by the way, this one's not available in the bookstore. It was 140 bucks from their distributor. Um, but yeah, and I know you, I looked it up. You can get them online for 25 or $30. So if you're, if you're interested in that book. Um, but omniscience, so we talked about that. It's God's perfect knowledge of the past, present, and the future. And I, if it weren't already taken, I would say, listen, are you listening? So I'm just gonna say, I'm just gonna say, listen, because this is, if you, if you take home nothing else, I want you to take this home because this is important. Because God has perfect knowledge of the past, present, and the future, infinitely perfect knowledge of the past, present, and the future, it means that no matter, if you're a believer, no matter what your circumstances are because of the promise we read earlier in Romans 8:28, if you had God's knowledge, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, you, you could have lost your job. You could have gotten the news last week that whatever you have is no longer treatable. You could have gotten some really bad news, but whatever situation you're in, if you had God's knowledge, you would put yourself in that exact same situation because God has perfect knowledge for everything and he's working it ultimately to, if you're a believer, he's working it to your good. Now, if you can actually live your life thinking that, imagine how it would change the way that you treated obedience to God. Because you couldn't help but want to obedient, be obedient to a God who knows that much about your life. So that's one. Here's another exercise. What about God's holiness? Another trait of God. Charnock has 70 pages on God's holiness. It, it's an amazing book. It, it, seriously, it will change your life. It'll take you about a month to read it, but it'll change your life. It's two volumes, by the way. I didn't tell you that because I thought that might scare you. Uh, but, but nowhere in scripture do we learn about God's holiness more than 
uh, Isaiah 6. That's Isaiah's call to the office of, of prophet. And there we meet some angelic beings called the seraphim. The seraphim have six wings. Uh, they have two with which they used to fly. They have two that cover their feet. We don't know why. We can guess, but we don't know why. But they have two that cover their face. And we do know why, because they tell us why. Because they shout out as loud as they can in, in Isaiah 6 that God is holy, 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 and that they are not able to view his holiness or his glory because it is so great, even the angelic beings have to cover their eyes. R.C. Sproul has a great take on this in his book, The Holiness of God. He talks about, there's a, a Hebrew idiom that they'll double a word. So if they use it twice, it's to emphasize it. Jesus did this when he said, verily, verily, or amen, amen, he meant that this was to be emphasized. There's a place in Isaiah that talks about the pit that Satan's gonna be tossed into. And the actual Hebrew translation is pit, pit, which means that Satan is gonna, if you can think of a pit, think of the pittiest pit, the darkest, deepest, gloomiest pit that you can think of and double that, that's the pit that Satan's gonna be tossed into. The Jews use that, the Hebrews use that when they wrote to emphasize things. Well, the only time in scripture that anything about God is, is, is repeated three times is that he's holy, holy, holy. And as we meditate on an attribute of God, I can't help but think that we're gonna be like Isaiah. What happened to Isaiah? He falls on his knees and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I cannot be around this God that has this level of holiness. That would drive obedience in anybody's life. Well, the third one, again, we're doing a little exercise here. The third one's love. That's part of a 101 page section in Charnock's book. It's a long book. Um, the Greeks had a word for the special love that God has for his creation. They called it agape love. I actually like the Latin better. It's a word caritas, which is from, the, uh, from that we get the English word charity, which if you think about John 3:16, the love, God so loved the world. God had charity for the world beyond charity that we can imagine that he gave us his only son. Uh, well, God does something extraordinary. When he saves us, uh, he does something that's, that's absolutely, to me, is absolutely mind-numbing. And if you if you've, are in my class, you've heard me use this before, but it's a, it's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, during the war, the Second War, the Second World War, from 1941 to 1943, I think, uh, Lewis was asked to do a series of 15-minute radio broadcasts on the BBC radio called Right and Wrong, A Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. That's not ambitious, is it? Um, but he was a classics professor at uh, Oxford at the time. And at the end of the war, these were all gathered together. And if you've ever wondered why all the chapters of Mere Christianity are the exact same length, it's because that's what they became, the book Mere Christianity. And in Mere Christianity, uh, Lewis says something about what God does when he saves us. And I just think, if seriously, I've, I've, I told my classes, if I can write one paragraph like this in my life, you can, Lord, you can take me, because this is, a, it's, is extraordinary. He says this, he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. That's what he does when he, when, when he brings you into saving faith. 
At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he, God, is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards, all very British, by the way. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. Now, why would God build a palace? Because he intends to come and live there himself. Isn't that beautiful? So God commands our obedience, but he comes to live with us himself. He comes to live in us himself as if we were his castle. He comes to live in us and and he helps us. He not only commands obedience, but he's there to help us be obedient. So again, we've got a new identity from this little short parochopy. We've got a new identity as Christians, as followers of Christ. We're blessed beyond any ability to imagine how blessed that we are. And and we're commanded to obey. And and God gives us the ability and then comes and lives with us to obey. I want to finish up with this. John Samus was a, a Presbyterian minister in the Midwest in the 19th century. He wrote a hundred and something hymns, uh, but the most famous one is Trust and Obey, and we're going to sing it in a second, but he wrote this. He said, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on his way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Uh, Father, thank you for the example of Mary and Joseph. Thank you that in them, We see the necessity to obey, to live our lives according to your instruction, not always according to our inclination, but to your instruction. Thanks for another wonderful Christmas season. May 2023 be a year when we really, really do seek to and learn how to be better at obedience. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.